What are some of the most common Opportunity Zones legal questions? Find out next! Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. And today I'm on site at the Coasis Coalition Opportunity Zone Super Conference in Dallas. And in person with me today is Steve Schneider, a DC-based partner at law firm Baker McKenzie. Steve, thanks for joining me today and welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, uh, I don't think I've had an uh, attorney on the podcast yet, uh, so I'm kind of excited to dive into some of the legal ramifications of Opportunity Zone investing. So, Steve, first tell me about Baker McKenzie and the work that your firm is doing in the Opportunity Zone space, and what services specifically do you provide to your clients, and who are your clients? Sure, so uh, Baker McKenzie is a small law firm, about 6,000 lawyers, you know, maybe the, you know, one of the top size firms in the, in the country, and uh, we do a lot in the fund space, and um, the head of the pastor tax group and the pastor group covers funds and real estate and whatnot, so our group does a lot in that, and uh, team with, the, of course, the corporate attorneys and forming funds and uh, really structuring the investments. And there's a lot of structuring between the person selling the property, buying the property, getting it set up right, writing the fund documents, and, uh, and really just making sure you don't uh, cross any lines you shouldn't cross. Yeah, and, and who, who are your clients typically in these, in these early days? You know, we have a, a wide spectrum of clients. We've got the funds themselves. We're setting up several mm -hmm. uh, qualified opportunity funds themselves of all different sizes and some quite large. And uh, we also have uh, folks selling. I've got several clients that are selling into qualified opportunity funds, and we're trying to structure it to make it work for the buyer and maybe have a little bit of rollover uh, into the fund ourselves. And um, also, qualified opportunity funds aren't necessarily all big funds because they're really just a two or three person, what used to be called a JV, but if you dot your eyes, you can make that a qualified opportunity fund. And so, you know, a quote private fund, if you will. Is right. It's easy enough to self-certify as an individual or a small group, that's, right? That's the beauty of the self-certification. Right, yeah. Uh, so let's back up for a minute here, and I want you to tell me about your background, Steve, and, and your areas of expertise, and how did you get to where you are today? Sure. So my background is I'm uh, both a lawyer and an accountant, uh, but uh, started out of law school, spent four years at the government in the past through a division of the Irish Chief Counsel's Office, and uh, then spent uh, six and a half years at a big four accounting firm in pass-through taxation always working in sort of the you know, funds, joint ventures, that, this sort of space, mm -hmm. which always includes a lot of real estate. And then I was uh, on the law firm side since 2005 and uh, pretty much stayed in the same general space of uh, funds and real estate, uh, but obviously on the law firm side drafting a lot of documents and uh, just taking people's soup to nuts through it. Which sounds good. And, and you, your firm has a focus, your firm is a large firm, large, large tax firm, um, but one of their specializations is, is Opportunity Zones, obviously, that's why you're here with me today. Um, and you're a panelist on the Opportunity Zones Super Conference panel um, this week. So tell me, what's your overall view of the Opportunity Zones program? I think it's, it's a very interesting program. It, it's, it's almost like some of the same nuances we uh, have from REITs that are obviously started slow and grew really big, except Opportunity Zones started big and 
and grooving faster. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a complex set of rules with a targeted targeted focus that uh, really uh, both have a lot of potential, but also has a, kind of a short timeline to get it all together because of some of the diminishing benefits. Uh, for example, the deferral ends in 2026. So there's a lot of people clamoring from all sides. I'm meeting with people that are investors, people are trying to you know, just set up the businesses and sell into funds, some people that own property already. I mean, it just comes from every direction. They're all trying to meet that deadline, balancing that with the uh, sometimes painfully slow uh, guidance process, yet I know they're trying very, very hard. Right, yeah, no, it is painfully slow because the, the clock is ticking on, on exactly. investors who are realizing gains or about to realize gains or maybe they have already realized gains, you know, 90 or 100 days ago. And, exactly. And yet they, they don't have the guidance that they need from the IRS. You mentioned the, the deferral running out at the end of 2026, so in order to take full advantage of the 15% the uh, step up in basis, you, you need to have your your capital deployed, this year. or at least, yeah, yeah, by the end of this year, yep. it, into a fund at least. Yes. The, the fund itself doesn't need to have the capital deployed, right. but, but the investors need to get their, their money in the fund before the end of this year, uh, barring any legislative change, I suppose. So. And I think that's why the, the, the larger, what I call blind pool funds that uh, are really getting a larger number of investors that want to go out there, you know, there's enough uncertainties we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that are making them hesitant absent that guidance, but yet there's just not much time left in the year. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a problem. It's going to ruin my it? Christmas. I yeah. just know it in my summer. <laughs> I'm sure it will. Uh, one of your colleagues at Baker McKenzie, uh, Chicago-based yep. Dan Cullen, yes. um, he's on your group, and he testified at the IRS hearing last month, or not last month, in February. Um, what were what were some of his key talking points, and and how were they received by the regulators? Do you, do you suppose? Yeah, I think I think the, the the key things he was really dealing with the practicalities needed by these funds that are they're waiting to pull the trigger. The biggest one uh, he focused on, and I think we all uh, need guidance on, is how to make the exit work. And he explained how you have a step up in basis, and as long as you've held it for ten years. But a fund owns many assets, and literally right now it seems to imply that you have to sell the interest in your fund uh, to get that benefit, but the funds sell assets. And so he suggested an approach saying that why don't we have a look-through approach and allow that step up to cascade through the assets, much like we have already in the tax rules for partnerships when you make an election called a 754 election. So that's the main push. I think it was well received. Uh, and. We're anticipating, hopefully in this next set of regs, that uh, we'll get some, some more guidance on that. I think there's still going to be some quirks in the details because it, it gets a little complicated. If you were getting a step up in selling your interest, the step up is basically on the date you sell your interest and it gets fair market value. If you're selling your assets, you know, how does that mechanically work if they're sold over different periods of time? When are you measuring that step up? You know, things like that. Right. And, and for some investors, it might be much easier to sell the individual assets off as opposed to selling the interest in the in the fund, All there the may investors. not there may not be a, a market for the interest in the fund. Right? There, there, there's 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 not a market. People are worried about walking into your liabilities. We deal with a lot. I work a lot in the REIT area, mm -hmm. as does Dan, um, and we've had to sell REIT stock for some tax quirk reasons too. And it's creates a hesitancy out there. People buying into something that they're not really wanting. They really want the asset. Right. Right. Um, so. You mentioned the the second tranche of IRS regulations. They're they're expected out any day now. Um, it's possible they are 
already out by the time this podcast episode airs. Um, just for my listeners out there, we're recording this on the afternoon of April 3rd, so we don't, we don't have the regulations yet. Um, but what, what are you personally, and, and what is the rest of the legal industry most looking forward to receiving more clarity on from the regulators? I would say the biggest thing uh, we're looking forward to hopefully receiving guidance is what I said Dan uh, spoke about at the, at the IRS hearing about the basis step up and the exit. I think that's what's holding the blind pool funds back. I mean, some are out there, but folks are thinking, well, gosh, do I do a, a separate AIV alternative investment per, per investment and make them all like mini funds so that I could sell uh, one QOF at a time? Complications like that that I'd really would rather avoid mm -hmm. uh, doing. So I think that's probably the biggest. Other big things are how to address the liquidity issue in 2026 when the taxes do, right? Because uh, my the tenure, investors have taxes. The investors pay, right? have taxes. Where, where do they right? get the cash? I mean, I uh, I, uh, I teach a, a co-teacher course at Georgetown on uh, drafting partnership and LLC agreements, and one of the topics we talk about is tax distributions. I.e., make sure you don't put people in a position where they have taxes without cash. And I've got published articles on that topic as well. And so the hope is that in 2026 they'll let us maybe do a debt finance distribution or something in 2026 to give people some cash. And is that going to be limited to only appreciation in the assets since it's uh, formed, such that people aren't really taking out their initial capital because the rules are designed for you to keep in that capital? What kind of restraints are going to be with that debt? And, uh, and I think debt in general, there's other questions about how does the basis step up work uh, after the 10-year hold when there's debt. We think it should work like a normal tax rule would work. Uh, in counting debt in, in terms of the full fair market value, but it would be nice to have more clarity on that. Mm -hmm. So that uh, I mean, there are other, lots of other lots of other nuance uh, uh, issues as as well. It would be it would be nice to have a little bit more clarity on uh, dealing with the um, some of the rollover issues. Maybe if the seller of a property may keep some interest in it, how mechanically might that be addressed, and. Um, I know you've got a big list of topics. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking. I, I, I don't think in this set of guidance, but they've also talked about, you know, they've got two proposed sets floating around at the IRS right now. Uh, I think in the next one, they're talking about giving some more guidance on certification process as well, right? Because we don't, we don't really know all the full details of what our obligations are and what they're going to want from us. So we've got a couple simple tax forms, but... It's just like a one-page It's like a one-page form, form. Right yeah, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't right? ask for a lot. Yeah, exactly. Right, so... Uh, it, so you mentioned tax distributions um, being a potential problem, right? It, you need you need some more clarity on that because otherwise you get into a situation where investors will owe tax in 2026 right. um, on the on their original gain that they you know realized in 2018, 2019, right. or beyond. Um, yeah. So what are some what are some other solutions for that? Well, people could always borrow what we call across the top, right? Mm -hmm. You could theoretically borrow against your interest in the fund. Hopefully the IRS wouldn't have any issues with that, but you know, not too many lenders want to loan against that, right? I mean, that's just not the type of asset a lender would, would loan against. So you might need to seek other lines of credit or whatnot to pay the tax. Now, plus, there's a lot of folks with a lot of gains do have different cash sources coming and going. And by the time 2026 comes around, no matter what they tell us, you know, at least we'll know. And then we can plan accordingly. Yeah, you'll you'll have a few years hopefully to exactly. to figure it out, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, were there were there any other topics that you're you're looking for more clarity on from the IRS? Yes, there's there's a big one out there that we haven't mentioned yet, which is the 
the land issue, if you will, right? It, because what the IRS has said in the rule that requires you to substantially improve a property, which is essentially doubling its tax basis, so improving it as much as you paid for it, right? right? They gave us some guidance saying that you could carve out the land in doing that measurement, okay? Well, what if there's only land that I bought? What if you're right? only buying land? What if I'm only buying land? Then how you do you know? improve? How do you improve from, uh, from How do you improve from basically? zero, yeah. right, right? You can't yeah. divide by zero. I mean, you could, I mean, I, the, uh, you know, would a hot dog stand be big enough Yeah, to and do I've, it, I've right? heard the example of, uh, of uh, buying a parking lot and then just putting up a little attendant shack. At yeah, exact, end, exactly, exactly. You know, the guard pay. desk or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Does so that it, qualify? It, and, I, and I've heard some rumors from the government saying, well, that's probably not enough, right? So when I've told people, I'd make it a little more significant. Mm -hmm. Another real practical issue I've been coming across lately is, what is the property? What is the property? I've got a piece of land that's got three, three buildings on it, right? And, and they're operated together, but they're separate standalone buildings, right? Maybe one already exists. You know, we know in the IRS uh, ruling that if I bought a two-story building and I made it 10, clearly that's one property, right? right. But what if, what if I didn't want to put my new eight-story building right on top of the two? I wanted to put it behind, or maybe historical rules required me to keep that two-story where it was and not touch it, right? So it's the question of what is a property has been a big issue in, in my practice. Yeah, that's interesting. Is there, are there any other points you're really looking to the, I mean, get some more guidance on? Yeah, I mean, other things, I don't know if they're going to get into all of these, but like the carried interest structuring. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think a lot of people are, are saying, well, how do, how do I do that? Does, how does that count toward it? How does that work? Can I, even, can I get QOZ benefits on the carry itself? Right. Or, or could the carry hurt me and it not be cash and not be viewed as the right? And should I, should I be separating the carry? Should I be trying to combine it to jazz up my, my, my return? I think that's, a, that's an issue. And then how does the carry work with the related party rules? Because often a person selling property may stay on and, and do some work on the property and get a carry. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, plus some rollover. How does that work with the related party rules and how does all that put together? So, and there's a, one more a big thing in there too is the IRS has the authority to elaborate on uh, what I call recycling of, uh, you know, um, of cash. So if the fund sells a property, buys another one, you know, we do have like kind of exchange rules already. Thank God they didn't get completely repealed. Right. Um, but the statute gives the IRS more authority to elaborate on those rules and give people more ability to reinvest, particularly given the restrictions about the 90% uh, tests and every six months testing, uh, you could have something that could satisfy a like kind of exchange. Right? I'm in within my 180 days, but but maybe it's causing me a problem under the the 90% test. In the meantime, while I'm waiting to get my new property, so I, a lot of guidance on that rollover uh, would be helpful. Yeah, it's all it's 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 a lot for for investors to manage for it, sure. It's a lot it, to keep it, track of. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And the 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 one panel I was on today. Uh, there was a lady who was on the corporate side talking about the, the PPMs, and I said, you know, it should be double the size of a normal PPM, but at some point, you don't want to say too much because you're going to bombard people and they won't, you know, follow it. So you're trying to craft a PPM document that's understandable, yeah. right? Yeah. And you also, there's this unknown, right? You don't know what you don't know, and you won't know those things until you start doing it. And so I can't warn them about the unknown. Right. Other than a generic warning, right? So, Steve, what's your breakdown of of OZ clients so far in terms of of real estate investors versus business investors? Have you been seeing any any business investors come in yet, or 
Or what, what are you seeing? Yes, I mean, so far all the actual people crossing the line saying I want to hire a lawyer or a real estate because it's more certain. There's just so much uncertainty on the business. But I've, I've definitely heard talk in the business. I've talked to people saying, yeah, I really want to do this. I want to, you know, and some of it's just free advice. Somebody's saying, hey, I want to open up a dot-com or whatever, some, some startup business. Well, my advice is if you're going to start up a business right now, brand new from scratch, I would probably make your headquarters in an opportunity zone. What would be the what would be the downside? Right? I mean, we we don't have the full certainty as to how the IRS is going to measure your in the zone or out of the zone uh, business. And maybe uh, you tell me you know everything's really outside the zone and you just have an empty desk. That's not going to work. Right. But if you have employees, you know, real people, I definitely consider setting up a zone. But if I have now, I'm going to ask you for some free we're, advice. We're, yeah, we're Let's in the zone right now. Yeah, we are. This in seems a zone. good enough so that, spot. That's yeah. actually a good point to, to mention on yeah. the podcast. We are we are coming to you from an opportunity zone in yeah. in in the Greater Dallas area in Plano, Texas, um, at the at the Opportunity Zone Super Conference here, put on by the Coasis Coalition. So, but getting back to my question, my I want some free advice now. If I have a a dot com business and I set up a, a my headquarters, let's say right here in Plano, Texas, in the Opportunity Zone. I've got a staff of, let's say I've got a staff of a dozen people, yeah. and they, they work here. They, this, this, this is their full-time job working at my dot-com, but my, my income is derived from, from all over the country because I sell an e-product or I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm shipping across the country a physical product, you know, um, you know e, an e-commerce type business. How, how does that how, how does that shake out, do you suppose? Well, I mean, if you've got all your employees and you're actually doing all your development and opportunities, I'd feel pretty darn good about that uh, just because your customers are outside. I mean, uh, it may, we don't have the guidance, but they may get right. into like, where are you closing the sales, right? I mean, and there's a lot of tax issues in that we do with jurisdictional issues all the time, cross-border. I mean, Baker McKinsey's huge cross-border law firm. This is a common issue. Where is your tax nexus? Yeah, exa right? exactly. Where's, yeah, exactly. So, and those are big things that, I mean, we in the tax area worry about uh, sometimes. But uh, hopefully they won't get that complicated, right? Because it's, it's yeah. a crazy complicated. But there's a 50% test, right? There's a 50% test. That says 50% I mean, of my income has to be derived from within the zone. Is that what it says? Yeah, but you but you just give me an example where 100% of your income, I would say, is derived yeah. from within the zone, right? So Well, I mean, but, but, it, you, but, but I guess uh, playing the devil's advocate, really my customers are located primarily outside of opportunity right, zones. Right, right. So it really depends where the IRS comes out in the yeah. guidance. But saying, yeah. how are they going to measure? They're going to look at traditional... Uh, uh, principles of uh, uh, tax of where's the sale close, where's the activities. I mean, it, usually, I mean, people sell all over the world, but they're not taxed all over the world. They're taxed where they're at, right? right. Where they, the, you know, uh, what we call effectively connected income or physical presence. And so, you know, what you described, I think, would be quite clearly, you know, good in that in that context. But the reality is, businesses aren't 100% physically in one spot, right? right? And uh, in in the conference, it was uh, somebody was talking about. Hey, why don't you at least if you have divisions and franchises and whatnot, make make that a separate uh, separate legal entity in the, in the zone? I mean, do the best you can, but hopefully, and I do think soon this might be in this next level of guidance. Um, you know, any any day now, uh, but they've been saying that for a while. So yeah, they have. I, I tell people a week just to give me some cushion. But uh, I've been saying a week for three weeks. I've been saying so. a week uh, <laughs> a week for three months. But yeah, but uh, but anyway, I think that. Um, I, I think that we will see some guidance because they've definitely talked about that. I just don't know which project it's in because last I spoke to the IRS folks, they said they've got they've kind of chopped it in half into two different proposed uh, reg projects. And my guess is what they probably do 
uh, is they will probably decide which goes in which half, right. depending on how far along it is and what, whether they can scoot it in this pile or this right. pile. Oh, and, then the, and, and they've already sent in the proposed guidance to, to, for the, the, one, to the White House, right? For right? the one side, to the, for the, uh, for the for of ORIA, yeah. Right, ORIA. right. Um, but but uh, just, so I guess we're waiting on on uh, OIRA yeah. to uh, to approve that and release it. That's what we're waiting on for yep, now. Yep. Oh, as of as of did I get the acronym? Did I get the acronym wrong? No, I, that's right. Okay. I've heard it called OIRA. OIRA. Yeah. OIRA. Uh, yeah. It's part of the OMB at the White House. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, Which I, is all new, right? I mean, this this all just came in in 2018. Yeah. We didn't used to have that level of review. Right, right, right. So um, anyway, this is all of as of. April third, when we're when we're speaking right now, uh, what what are some other, yeah, businesses businesses really tricky because I mean obviously real estate you know it's either in the zone or it's not a building can't walk across the street businesses but obviously I have, I have had properties across the line you know but you <laughs> they they kind of they kind of yeah. straddle the, yeah straddle the, the, there's, there's some straddles the okay some straddles, so that's an interesting <laughs> case but probably probably an not, edge not case too, yeah, yeah not yeah, too yeah, often not you too see up, that yeah yeah. Um, yeah, uh, where where was I? Yeah, the, but with, with the, the operating the, business, the, the, the operating businesses. Yeah. What are some what are some other uh, tricky parts of of identifying whether or not a business is in a zone? And well, I, I think you know where the people are. You know, is, is the main thing. I mean, you're going to have people in multiple locations, and so do you need to create a separate entity for the people that are in the zone location? Okay, and uh, you could just create intercompany. You know. Transactions, you'll have transfer pricing issues like you have in any other business. Right? So you might have one umbrella company, but then there would be under that umbrella company there'd be like different, different well, corporations. And you wouldn't, split you out. wouldn't encourage. I mean, you could have a large corporation mm -hmm. that. I mean, a large corporation's division might be some other completely independent business, right? For, for a small guy, and True. and in fact, a large corporation might buy that business, right? That's already existing, created an opportunity zone. You hate to lose that benefit, right? So. Um, I think that uh, you will see people having different legal frameworks around what's in the zone and really scrubbing through it and trying to make educated decisions. But uh, yeah, we'll right. know a lot more. We'll know a lot in, more in with the coming guns. months. Yeah. Um, but even with that, it's it's going to be totally factual. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I'm sure. Oriented. So, you know, we spoke about business for a few minutes here, and I know mo most of your clients, though, at the moment, actually, you said all of your clients yeah. at the moment are real estate. Yes. Focused. So, and what are some of the most common questions that you're receiving so far from different people? And I guess you're fielding questions from business investors. Yeah, too. fielding questions from, from all, but yeah. uh, but the, but but the ones that have things right here, right now. Mm -hmm. um, it's the whole life cycle of the, it could be the seller, right? The person who has a property in a zone says, "I want to capitalize on this. I want to." I've had the question of. Is this structured properly? Will this be a good zone property for a buyer? And therefore, should I sell it now? You know, we've got somebody who's got a building only partially built, right? It needs to be finished building. Should I sell it now before it's finished so that the buyer can finish it and get their doubling of basis? Well, the answer was yes. I think that did make sense, actually. Um, and, but they didn't really want to you know, part with it completely, so they want to keep a piece of it, right? Now you have the related party issues, the carried interest issues, and how all that structure works. And those are, are, are quite complicated. It would be nice if the IRS give a little bit more guidance on, on um, you know, even how you measure a 20% relatedness test when there's a profits interest that just has a piece of profits only but not capital, you know. Um, the, once you sell it, once you form the fund, you know, the, uh, the issues come up with 
what can you have a feeder fund, right? I mean, funds often have feeder funds for people. You have certain people are grouped together. Right now, the rules are written that the person who has the direct gain has to be a direct member in the QLF. And although the QLF rules are written such that you want one lower tier regarded entity, so you can take the benefits of some of the safe harbors from the regulations, but you can't have two <laughs> lower tier entities. So you're in this funny spot now where you have this wooden structure. And so we're walking clients through how to do that, how to make sure your qualified opportunity fund is fully compliant before your first investor comes in. So if you're the investor, you want to scrub the investment and make sure it is compliant, right? You need to have your documents agile enough so that you can modify it as the rules change. You need to have uh, PPM disclosures to your investors, and you're trying to think of all the things that could go wrong. At the same time, you don't want to scare them out the door, but uh, you do need to let people know uh, the open items. Absolutely. So you mentioned the 20% the related provision. Yes. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, I guess that plays into I have some real estate in an opportunity zone already. How do I, how do I benefit? And, 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 exactly. So, so, so tell us a little bit more about how that works for, for an individual who, who wants to capitalize on, 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 OZ, on the OZ policy, but they already own the Right, they already own, they already the, own the property, right? Yeah, so there's yeah. a few ways. The restriction is that the, 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 the buyer, uh, which is either the fund, if it does it directly, or the lower tier qualified opportunity partnership, or corp, uh, if it's the buyer, uh, has to acquire it by purchase, okay, uh, from an unrelated person. And they lower the relationship test down to twenty percent. Okay, and so a couple things people are, are grappling with is, well, I could um, lease the property, the land. You know, the land issue anyway. I could lease the land, so I'm not actually acquiring land by purchase, but I'm not acquiring land at all, right? Um, and then build on the land. So I've, you know, like sometimes in New York City, you see ground leases right, in those big buildings, you know, and, and other locations, obviously, as well. But, you know, that's one option. Some folks say, well, gosh, a lease could be viewed as property. You've capitalized things in your lease. You know, how does that measure in? You could say, okay, fine, I'm going to go and actually put it in, okay? But you could have the seller um, sell, say, 80%, okay, and contribute 20%. And in that case, the seller would not be participating in the benefit of the qualified opportunity zone from an investor standpoint, but they would get to keep their investment, right? Keep hold of it. And I say 20, I'm going to go down to 19.9. Go, yeah, to be, sure. Yeah, just sure. to be under the threshold. Sure. But, but the fund can do that because when you use the regarded lower tier entity, only 70% of the assets have to be good, right? So you could have had the contributed 19.9, yet it's a bad asset, it's not acquired by purchase, but you have enough cushion with the lower tier. You couldn't have done that if you did that at the top fund entity. Mm -hmm. um, that's where the, you know, the, the favorable uh, rules came in in the last set of regulations. Right, right. Uh, and what are, what are you, you touched upon this in, in one of my previous questions, but what are some of the other practicalities of pulling the trigger on making an opportunity zone investment, on actually writing a check to one of these funds, or or, or self-certifying my own fund as an investor. Yeah, well, if it's if it's your own fund, it's pretty easy, 
right? Mm -hmm. um, because it is self-certification, you know, but you, you do need to make sure your ducks in a row because one of the There's a lot of compliance. There's that some I have compliance, to, that right? I have to do, right? And we don't even know what it all is yet, yeah. right? That's, that's the issue. We have some draft forms. They're simple one-pagers, right? But your fund needs to basically have a plan built in saying that here's what I'm going to do. You know, here I'm, I want to be investing qualified opportunity zones and I want to comply. And so you need that in your documentation before you put the money in. <laughs> that ordering is important. So, so make sure you have it, you know, your document saying that, then you get the money in. And uh, if you're going to use the lower tier entity, make sure you've set up that lower tier entity as a regarded entity from a tax standpoint. And if it's just your own private fund and there's really nobody else in it, you know, you say, well, gosh, I wasn't really planning on having a second investor in that lower tier, so now I have to find one, right? So the GP might be able to play that role or, um, uh, or the rollover guy could, could have a little piece in that entity making it regarded. So there's, there's ways to do it, but you need to make sure you follow, follow those. And like you said in the certification, we know the basic uh, sample form the IRS has, but we've been told that further certification is going to come out. What they're wanting to do is make sure that we're investing in the right things, right? You know how Opportunity Zones can't invest in you know, massage parlors and you know, um, you know, golf courses, I think. Golf yeah. courses, yeah. right. I mean, just and that, these that, seedy that, things. That's, that, yeah. Those thin businesses um, but come from the... But I didn't see the, on the list, though. <laughs> no, that's true. The, but the, the, and those thin businesses are a uh, holdover from the New Markets Tax Credit Program, I believe. Was, Is that right? It, was, um, it, it, it comes from that part it, of the It's that of the code. Yeah. And, um, and, and, I, and, I, and I get some of these restrictions, uh, but I don't get some others. But I suppose well, the, golf yeah, the course, list, you're not the really list, the list is a little bit funny. It's a little bit. It's yeah. a little bit funny. And a little, a little it might funny. be a little bit outdated yeah. too. But, uh, but go on. Yep. But uh, uh, what were we talking about? Practical. We were, we were talking about some of the practicalities of in, of investing. Uh, actually pulling the trigger. Pulling the trigger. And, and, and the you were going through. Is, you were going through the self certification. Right. If some, if an individual or right. small group of individuals wants to start their own right. fund. But what about what about writing a check to uh, a fund? Yeah, I think the the, the uh, being agile, adapting yourself to the new rules. When you've got money coming in, right? You need to bake into your documents. If I'm going to start taking cash right now, and I tried to warn people and I tried to put as many open flexibilities, but. What if I, I haven't built in enough? So I think that is why people are more than not waiting for hopefully any day now, any week now, <laughs> uh, set of guidance. And we're hoping that they didn't punt on some of the key issues. But I, I do feel pretty optimistic that they'll cover a couple of the key ones, particularly the exit mechanism. And I think once funds hear that, then I think they could deal with the rest of the stuff. The liquidity issue, hopefully they'll deal with, allowing us to make some distributions to give them cash to pay the tax. Those are probably the two biggest ones. That if they cover those, uh, yeah, the I, I exit, feel like I could go. the exit is huge. It's, it's no, because I mean that's when you that's when you reap the big rewards of the program. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so knowing how to exit, it doesn't stop a private fund, though, right? I mean, that, it, so a big fund uh, with you know unknown investors, uh, that's a huge thing. But a fund can just be three people, right? right. The same three people that we're going to do it as a joint venture, call it a fund. I've done several of those where that's fine. We, we'll, we'll deal with exit. We're friendly parties. We'll modify our documents. Uh, that's not going to stop us. Right. And what are some of the biggest misconceptions that, that you're hearing or, or, or the biggest mistakes that you're seeing being made here by, uh, by different Opportunity Zones participants, especially in these early days before we have all the guidance out? Yeah. You know, 
Mistake is a harsh word, particularly to a lawyer, because uh, we always think of getting sued. But so I won't say I've seen any mistakes. But okay, no but, mistakes. Yeah, but no, how no, about no, just no, some misconceptions? Yeah, maybe yeah, we'll call I think, misconceptions yeah, I think, that you've seen I, I, I or think, that, you, that you've heard. Well, I think you know there's open questions that different people view differently. Like, does the carried interest get the benefit of the of the tax um, freebie in, in, in year ten? Right? Can I get a step up in my in my carry? You know, the, the statute refers to capital gains rolled in. And that's what qualifies. That's not an interest for services. Can you somehow staple that? You know, some people are more bullish than others on that. Um, but why not try? Well, we'll see guidance soon enough, right? Because it could be that maybe that carried interest hurts us under the related party rules. I mean, so we're, we're trying to balance you know, what might help us in some ways to what might hurt us uh, if you're dealing with a, uh, you know, a private fund where the guy with the carry is also the seller. You know, The um, other things people have wondered about is that um, it came up on one of the panels today was the attributes carry over your tax attributes. Uh, how does that work? What is an attribute? For example, some is if I have a 1231 gain, okay, which is property, depreciable property, like, like a property, like real property leased out, right? It's 1231. Mm -hmm. um, if I have that gain, can I roll that into an opportunity zone on a gross basis before I've had to net it with some other 1231 losses? Okay, and uh, and then will that tax attribute of 1231 pop back up in 2026? That'd be a, hopefully something the IRS would address because if you don't do that, you never know what your net 1231 gain is until you flow all the way up to the top individual investor who has to run those numbers. And even they may not know until the end of the year when they see everything else they've had. So right. I think not giving the people the benefit of using that gross and then catching that under the attribute rule so they're not walking away from that potential recapture would be, would be good. But I think that some people don't even think about it. They're like, of course, 1231 gain is fine. And until you point out, well, it could be recaptured. Yeah. No, that's, we've given us a lot to think about here during our discussion. Uh, you mentioned that you were on a panel earlier today here at the, at the conference that we're at. Um, what's, what would you say is the biggest takeaway from the panel that you spoke on, or maybe one of the other panels that you've, you've seen here today? If, you've, if you had to summarize it in one point, maybe two points. Yeah, two, two, two points. <laughs> you know, I was on two different panels, and the biggest thing I took away was actually the, the, the huge interest in specific questions of the audience. You know, we, we went through some of the basics, but very good practical questions about what do I do in this situation? What do I, how does this attribute, how does the carried interest work? That came up. Um, and you the, don't know the answer to that I don't question. Know, so some, yeah. of the, some of these questions you don't know the answer yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. So but I never can, answer, I don't know. Continue. I, 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 yeah. I, I, I answer, here's what a likely outcome would be, but obviously I don't write the rules, right. uh, so I can't guarantee it. But based on my experience, hopefully it will come out this way. But what's the best way to handle it? Should you wait? Should you not wait? That's really where my role as a counselor and the lawyer's role as a counselor comes in, right? Some people you say, well, you can wait. You, you're in a private fund. You don't have to wait because we could always fix it up later, right? Some things, how do you deal with it? Maybe this is something that's better dealt with with a, a, just a provision in your document that allows you to, to change in the future and just let people know, you know, things, things could change. The, the, the concern is, though, if you, these are closed-end funds, right? Because it's mm -hmm. a ten-year run. Um, you're locking somebody up for ten years when there's so many uncertainties. 
yeah, in a non-family uh, and friends environment, uh, that could be that could be hard, right? I mean, it's it's sort of like writing a, it's almost like writing a prenuptial agreement with somebody you don't even know, right? That's a you tough ask sometimes. It's a tough the, ask. The, the, it, it, it definitely has to be patient capital. Exactly. The money coming in. Exactly. But you've got deals waiting to be done. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and the, the, there's going to be more money. Once the rules are finalized, there's more money chasing those few deals. So do you go forward now and go ahead and buy that property? And maybe what you do is you set up your fund as a private fund and, let it, and then expand later and get some seed money and, and at least get a track record. Yeah. That's interesting. A lot of specific questions that you received. Yeah. I think, yeah, everybody has a has a slightly different situation and needs uh, answers tailor made for their specific situation. And that's where you come in. So exactly. How do you integrate like kind exchanges with mm -hmm. the fund and divert a million questions? I'm sure. I'm sure you get a lot of questions all the time. Yes. You're, the, you're the OZ uh, law expert <laughs> here, so <laughs> a lot of people want your time. I'm sure. So, well, tell my tell my listeners now where they could go to learn more about you and, and Baker McKenzie's Opportunity Zone service offerings? Yeah, so uh, Baker McKenzie obviously has a website where you can find any of us uh, or my email is steven.schneider at bakermckenzie.com. My partner, uh, Dan, I'm not sure if it's Dan or Daniel.cullen at bakermckenzie.com. We'll, we'll figure could, that out. You can Google us uh, yeah. and, and it pops right up, yeah. but uh, that's probably the easiest, either either me or Dan. But we've got a whole team uh, working on these things. And, uh, you know, we... we are benefited by having the largest tax practice uh, of any law firm that I can think of by, by multiple, and that's just because Baker, Mr. Baker was actually a tax lawyer when the firm was founded, uh, and like 30% of our lawyers are taxed. So it's just a, a topic that fit well within our, our funds group and the, and the heavy tax practice that we have. We just like complicated things. <laughs> it sounds like it, yeah. And this has been a rather complicated discussion today, but you've done your best distilling it <laughs> as best you can, so I appreciate it. Uh, well, for my listeners out there, uh, I will have links to Baker McKenzie, and I'll also have um, Steve's email address and Dan Cullen's email address listed as well on the show notes page for this episode. And you can find those show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Steve, thanks for joining me today. Great. Well, thanks. Glad to be here. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit opportunitydb.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.